0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Dorowski, and this week we're discussing Mr. Fantastic, Invisible Girl, The Thing, and The Human Torch from The Fantastic Four. And joining me for the discussion is producer Andrew. Welcome, Andrew. Hello. Specifically, we're going to be talking about Fantastic Four, numbers 48 through 50, which are popularly known as the Galactus Trilogy. These three issues tell the story of a cosmic threat named Galactus coming to devour the planet Earth. These stories are collaboration between writer Stan Lee, artist Jack Kirby, Inker Joe Sinnott, and letterers Artie Simic and Sam Rosen. And uh, Andrew, I'm I'm surprised to realize I don't think we've talked about the fantastic four yet on the podcast.
1: I don't think it's come up. Yeah.
0: And what makes that so surprising is we've talked about plenty of superheroes, plenty of comic books. This is the start of the Marvel superhero universe is fantastic. Four. Uh, number one from November, 6, 1961 is its cover date. Uh, that's uh, you know, a Jack Kirby, Stanley co-creation. Fantastic four. Number one is considered the beginning of Marvel superheroes, which as a force in popular culture is bigger now than it ever has been in history. (laughs) Um, It's kind of important. Yeah. And, uh, and somehow we, we haven't gotten around to it. And also surprising the thing specifically is one of my very favorite characters in all of popular culture. Um, When writers get the thing, right. That is one of my uh, favorite things to find in, in storytelling. And this also for why this story is so significant, this Galactus trilogy, which is from, uh, let's see. No, no, I, I don't think I actually wrote down the exact year. Uh, let me, let me pull it up real quick. Um, but this is kind of the beginning of Marvel's grand cosmic stories, which again, for popular culture, <laughs> is a pretty big deal, uh, mm-hmm. for, for what Marvel has done in their, in their cinematic universe, even without the fantastic four, uh, you know, or using Galactus in the, in the, um, in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, the overall tone of this large cosmic threat like Thanos, like you could point to this three-issue mini or or, or storyline from Fantastic War, which is from 1966, uh, the, these three issues. Uh, so really, really important for shaping American popular culture as we know it today. And um, I have read this trilogy probably at least four times before doing it for this episode. It gets included in a lot of collections of like best of Fantastic Four. uh, And the, you know, the idea of Galactus is such a prominent part of Marvel lore. If you pick up any uh, book about, uh, you know, the Marvel comic books, some reference to this is it's not surprising to find a reference to the Galactus trilogy, Uh, whether it's a nonfiction book kind of detailing the history of Marvel comics or even a, uh, you know, like a best of Marvel, you may find some references to the the Galactus trilogy uh, in there. Had you ever read these three issues,
1: Andrew? I had not. And I was, I was going to say, it's kind of interesting that you present it as the, the Galactus trilogy because it's, it's old school comic books, which means it's not really a cohesive trilogy. It is out of these three issues. Two issues worth of Galactus stuff. There's hmm. one full issue of Galactus stuff. The first issue is is half wrap up from the previous adventure, yep, and half introduction of this Galactus adventure. And the last issue is half wrap up of the Galactus adventure and half Johnny Storm's going to college. Yep,
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm not, I'm not even gonna touch on the end of the uh, the third issue because <laughs> like
1: oh like it's so compact. There's it's so dense. This would be this would be a five or six issue storyline now
0: it might even be like a 12 issue year long (laughs) we're just blowing it out
1: (laughs) yeah but like it would be blown out it would be you wouldn't have like that introductory stuff at the end of the last issue into the next story we talked about this with um with walt simonson's thor stuff Mm -hmm. where every i mean each of those issues that we talked about beta ray bill there was also like four pages of build up to the next story and it's like it's not even featuring any characters (laughs) Of of the demon forging a sword, right? Yeah, and so it's it's just a different kind of like style of storytelling, and so it's it's so weird to think like, yeah, Galactus really really important. It's really the content of of two issues worth of storytelling here, mm-hmm.
0: and we will uh, definitely get into this when we after we've done the summary. There's also such a different tone than modern comic book storytelling. Um, there is none of the. Ironic distancing of yes, we know this is silly. That so much, even even the superhero films, uh you know, have done of like a wink and a nod every time they d- they give you a character's name. Like yeah, we know it's kind of a cheesy name. We know it's kind of go. We're Gen X storytellers. We've got to distance ourselves from anything earnest. Uh, <laughs> and this is cheesy and corny both simultaneously, but it's earnestly so. And it's fun to go back and find those stories before everything kind of had to have this hip and cool veneer.
1: Hmm.
0: all right a little bit of trivia about the fantastic four uh as we said created by jack kirby and stanley uh famously hard to parse who is responsible for what when it comes to early marvel comic books that stanley we we know he wrote the words on the page we know the artist drew the pictures who was responsible for how much of each story is debatable uh the creation of the fantastic four generally it is Accepted, though there are interviews with Jack Kirby when he is bitter uh, because of issues with Marvel not returning his art after his art has become far more valuable than it was ever known that it was going to be at the time. Uh, where he was just doing work for higher stuff and just producing the art and turning it in, and there was a warehouse where a lot of the art ended up getting stolen from or handed out to people who would just drop by and say, "Hey, we're fans of Marvel Comics. They might be given original Jack Kirby art," uh, and then. Later on, when that starts to be sold at auctions for thousands of dollars, Jack Kirby wants it back and Mm -hmm. just can't get it and he gets bitter and angry. And then he does some say uh, like in the late 70s, some stuff about like, uh, you know, the fantasy Four was entirely my my doing. Even the people who did those interviews say that feels like an overreach. (laughs) Um, Stanley uh, has always maintained. I came up with the character names. Jack Kirby came up with the designs. We came up with the stories together. That's kind of and that's that's feels right. uh for for what we know of the creation of the fantastic four there is also in terms of uh what makes these things muddy like there's a mythological origin point of the fantastic four of mm-hmm. stanley saying i'm going to do a serious superhero story telling it my way not just doing the kiddie fair that we've been doing all through the 50s of you know just kind of trite sci-fi stories with a little moral at the end because the comics code doesn't let us you know, do anything controversial. And he was Uh, on the
1: cusp of, of quitting comic books. So so Stanley's definitely
0: mythologized. Like I was about to quit the job and my wife said, just do the stories you want to do. And also within this mythology, there's the story that the, a uh, publisher of Marvel comics. Uh, the man who was in charge of it met with, was on the golf course with the publisher of DC comics and heard that the justice league of America was selling really well. And he came back and told Stanley, I need you to do superheroes. And Stanley's like, oh, I don't want to do superheroes. I'm quitting everything. And his wife says, tell the kind of stories you want. And that's when he gets the idea for the fantastic four who are not going to have costumes are not going to have uh, secret identities. Uh, at first, <laughs> uh, this changes pretty quickly. Um, they're going to bicker amongst each other. That stays consistent. Uh, They're going to have foibles. Uh, A lot of the drama is not just going to be what is the big threat of the week? But, uh, you know, Reed and Sue are dating, but are they going to get married? And Johnny has a girlfriend and, and, and the thing is angry at, at Reed and Reed feels guilty because he, because uh, his experiment turned, you know, his, his brashness turned his best friend, Ben Grimm into the thing, which is who, and the thing feels like a monster. You know, there's all this, uh, drama that's going to come. And so, you know, that, that part is consistent, but this mythologized origin points is, it's hard to pin down. Um, So, uh, some other trivia, a copy of Fantastic Four number one recently sold at auction for $1.5 million, which is quite the investment of, I believe, the dime cover price for 1960. (laughs) Yeah, the the original. (laughs) If you bought this in 1961, uh, which yes, you've been sitting on it for, you know, a while, (laughs) uh, decades, but to go from a dime to $1.5 million, even with inflation. That that's
1: significant <laughs> that is an improvement i'd say
0: yeah uh the fantastic four has been adapted for animated tv four times 1967 1978 1994 and uh 2000 uh i think it was four i missed i missed the last number i think it was 2004 was the last adaptation there have been three or four live action films depending on how you want to count count this the ones that have officially been released Theatrically, came out in 2005 and 2007, and then an attempted reboot in 2015. Uh, the reason you might say there have been four live action films is that there is an infamous Roger Corman film from the 1990s that was never actually meant to be released. Uh, it was the the film company that had the rights to make a Fantastic Four film was going to lose those rights if they did not go into production on something. So they just, with basically no budget, had Roger Corman write and direct um, a Fantastic Four film that had all four characters and Doctor Doom, uh, but. It was never actually intended for release. This was really just we're holding on to the rights to make a better version later. Mm-hmm. Um, but bootlegs of that uh, became infamous. Uh, somehow, I, I don't know how any cuts made it out, but they made it out, and you people would buy VHS copies at Comic Con and things like that. I'm going to go ahead and guess it's all up on YouTube, but I haven't checked. Uh, but from all reports, it's it is truly terrible.
1: <laughs> so I'm one. assuming that you have not watched it then.
0: No, I never have. Um, But I remember even uh, reading like in Wizard magazine in the 90s, like references to this awful Fantastic Four film that secretly exists somewhere. Um, You know, before there was any superhero films outside of Batman and Superman, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. there'd be whispers uh, and I'd see allusions to this terrible uh, 1990s Fantastic Four film and marvel has announced a new fantastic four film will be part of the mcu but it is not yet in production and the release date has shifted a couple of times so who knows uh notably we did have uh an appearance of mr fantastic in dr strange in the multiverse of Mad- uh, madness uh played by john krasinski in that version but no there's that was like there was online fan casting of uh John Krasinski as Mr. Fantastic for a while. And so they just used him for that. But he definitely has not signed on to go star in the new Fantastic Four film that's being made or anything like that.
1: Yeah. Casting is not not official. Yeah.
0: Um, and this is my favorite little random bit of uh, adaptation of Fantastic Four trivia. There was a short lived radio show uh, in the 1970s that Bill Murray voiced the Human Torch for. And Stanley oh. was the narrator. And the script was always word for I no forward.
1: idea about that.
0: Yeah, the script was almost word for word the 1960s comic books. It was just uh the 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 actors playing uh Mr. Fantastic, uh, Invisible Woman or or Invisible Girl at the time. Uh the Human Torch and the thing were reading the dialogue boxes from the comic books and Stanley was providing narration to kind
1: of explain what was going on. Hmm. You know that um, works with the way the 60s comic books were written.
0: Uh, You know, and Fantastic Four, even though they've had those adaptations we just talked about, maybe, I mean, not as well known in the public consciousness as Superman or Spider-Man or Batman. So let's just run through what each one of these characters can do. Uh, Mr. Fantastic is Reed Richards. And, oh, well, I guess their origin is uh, because this is a comic book from 1961. They were trying to beat the Russians into space. They went Mm -hmm. up in a spaceship that didn't have the proper shielding, and they were hit by cosmic rays that transformed their bodies in various ways and gave them different powers. Reed Richards is the scientist, the kind of aloof, uh, distant, uh, emotionally distant figure in the group. And he uh, can stretch his body uh, like, like a plastic man or a last girl. Um, that's what Mr. Fantastic can do. Uh, Sue Storm is his girlfriend. Uh, and, well, in that earlier version, that's basically her role <laughs> to be there as his girlfriend. And she's going to gain the power to turn invisible. And also to project force field shapes, bubbles, you know, whatever. She, she could project a, a force field. Uh, that mm-hmm. is a power that gets underused in the early Fantastic Four. And then becomes she becomes one of the most powerful people in the Marvel Universe because of the different ways that writers decide to start using her force field powers. And it's not until the 1980s that she switches from Invisible Girl to Invisible Woman. Um, uh, but now, like in any adaptation, she's always just called Invisible Woman. Uh, with this. Uh, Human Torch, shockingly, can burst into fire <laughs> and fly. and looks like walking flame. And that is Sue Storm's brother, Johnny Storm, uh, who just kind of tags along. <laughs> that's that's why he's in the spaceship in the original version. <laughs>
1: yeah. He's, he's the little brother.
0: Yep. And then Ben Grimm is the thing, uh, and he's the pilot, uh, and he is uh, the not as uh like he's just really there's the muscle is what he gets presented as especially in these early early issues um and but but he becomes so much more he turns into orange rock (laughs) like this orange rocky figure is the thing uh but he's filled with angst uh like the next issue after uh the galactus trilogy is called this man this monster and it's all about you know the thing being moody uh and uh well also being replaced by someone who's it's weird but it's also classic uh, which is what I say about so much early Marvel stuff. It's weird, but it's classic. Mm-hmm. Um, and you end up with the characters forming this kind of uh pseudo-family unit. uh, Reed Richards as uh, the dad that's always away at work. In this case, his lab. (laughs) He's always in the science lab. You have Sue Storm as the domestic wife. Again, in these early issues in the 1960s, the characters evolved incredibly across uh, the 60 years that Fantastic Four have been published and is not at all treated in this way, but that's what you get very early on is this kind of uh, uh, father figure, mother figure. Uh, And then Johnny Storm is the rebellious teenager, the Human Torch, literally a hothead. Um, And then uh, the thing becomes uh, almost a baby, is <laughs> the way this is treated. Because he's he's often throwing tantrums, angry about the transformation that has come, uh, and and sulky, uh, and uh, everyone uh, often has to uh, like gear their 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 actions around what's going to set off the thing uh, into one of his temper tantrums and he also wears a costume that shows off this great rocky art that Jack Kirby did for the the character design that means he's just wearing a pair of swim trunks basically as his costume so it's literally a diaper <laughs> if you want to carry <laughs> yeah. this, this idea of the family unit uh, to, you know that far along uh, in it um, but this is in the 1960s with the Cold War and the idea of the nuclear family being a bastion of American identity like it actually works really well uh, to start thinking about them in this way and it's a fantastic group unit uh, that that comes about because of this um even though they have they're the first Marvel superheroes they've rarely been as prominent as spider-man um, or uh, you know, in, in in the '80s and '90s, it becomes the X Men are the prominent ones. In the 2000s, it becomes the Avengers are the most prominent. It really doesn't feel like the Fantastic Four have had that um, that status uh, for it, but they've they've consistently been there uh, for for Marvel Comics, and it really is a great set of characters that Jack Kirby and Stanley uh, co created uh, with this. Um, now the the that group is, I, I think. I'm comfortable saying that's a true co-creation between Jack Kirby and Stanley with this Galactus trilogy. There's one thing that I love that has been since day one, Stanley has said this, that they, they talked out a plot about a God-like being that was going to come and threaten to devour earth. In this case, like like devour doesn't mean like take a giant bite out of it. The way uh, the tick cartoon is going to make fun of Galactus with the omnipotence, who takes a bite out of the moon. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. and just literally like to eat the moon, like a cookie. Uh, uh, um Galactus is going to drain Earth of its life energies, basically, uh, is what we mean when we say he's going to come devour the planet. Um, but Jack Kirby and Stanley talked about this this larger than than life threat, this godlike being that was going to come. And and these are some of the beats that we want to have. But Johnny Storm's going to fly off and find the device that will save the day, and you know, these, these sorts of things. And then Jack Kirby turned in the pages and there were these... Multiple pages of this figure uh, uh, in space on a surfboard, and Stanley's like, "What? What is this, Jack? <laughs> we can <didn't laughs> talk about this at all." <laughs> so, so the Silver Surfer is first is introduced. A, is a Jack Kirby. That is a Jack Kirby creation that Stanley had no idea was coming, and then he got the pages, and he's like, um "What am I supposed to do with this?" Now, Stan, now Silver Surfer becomes a Stanley favorite, uh, and Stanley's going to end up writing of like some of his most philosophical work is gonna be uh in a Silver Surfer solo series that comes uh you know later on um with a different artist. Um I th- I think it may be when Jack Kirby has uh, is either leaving Marvel soon or has left Marvel. Um it, but Stanley like really does fall in love with the characters of Silver Surfer, but he had no idea that character was coming in this in this trilogy. Mm-hmm all right well let's get into that plot summary so we meet the silver server but before we do that listeners we want to thank you for downloading this episode and we especially want to thank any of you who support us on patreon if you'd like to support us financially we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonist and support our show with at least a dollar per month all supporters at any level receive access to our special quick casts which are monthly episodes in which we talk about the media that we've been consuming and also give updates on our fantasy box office and all patrons who support us with five dollars per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss on to the summary of the galactus trilogy fantastic four number 48 the coming of galactus as the fantastic four are returning from an adventure on the dark side of the moon it mysteriously looks like the sky on earth is on fire but there's no heat the human torch flies off to investigate the crowds of scared onlookers blame him for the sky being on fire uh the fantastic four get home uh, at the baxter building and Reed locks himself into his lab to investigate this. The flames in the sky change in the field of rocky debris. The Watcher, who is a cosmic being that the Fantastic Four have met before, whose sole role is to observe, uh, arrives. And he explains that he is interfering. <laughs> hey, even though he's only supposed to watch, he's interfering. And he used the appearance of flames and debris to try and prevent a, a being called the Silver Surfer from detecting the abundant life and energy that is on the planet Earth. But the Silver Surfer, a herald of another cosmic being called Galactus, penetrates the debris field and lands on the roof of the Baxter building, where he sends a signal to summon Galactus. The thing runs and punches the Silver Surfer, sending him flying, but Galactus appears in the sky above uh, the Baxter building and declares that he will consume this planet. Issue number 49, if this be doomsday. The Watcher asks Galactus to move on from Earth, but this has no effect. The Thing in the Human Torch attack Galactus, but this has no effect. The Silver Surfer was knocked onto the skylight of Alicia Masters' uh, apartment. She is a blind artist and sometimes girlfriend of the Thing. Alicia Masters offers the Silver Surfer help. Uh, Galactus is assembling machinery, and I just want to say I love Jack Kirby's cosmic machinery. This oh, is, it's it's some of the best stuff. Oh, my goodness. His, his ability to just invent techno... Uh, like it's a technological sublime almost like you look at it and you're like what is this I have awe and terror <laughs> as I stare at this uh, it is just so good um, and Alicia, let's see. Uh, so, so Galactus is now assembling this machinery that's going to drain Earth of all of its life energies. Alicia listens to the Silver Surfer explain why he is there and begs him to turn against his master, Galactus. Uh, Watcher explains that there is a device aboard Galactus's ship, not here on Earth, but off in the deep reaches of space, that may help the Fantastic Four to be able to stop Galactus. The Fantastic Four attack Galactus's machines to distract him, while the Human Torch leaves Earth to go and find Galactus's ship. Issue number 50, the startling saga of the Silver Surfer. The Silver Surfer confronts Galactus to try and stop him from devouring Earth. He has been turned by Alicia Masters and now wants to protect Earth. This does not work, but it does give the Human Torch more time. He returns via strange subspace <laughs> travels Oh my gosh. Some existential issues. <laughs> this is Jack, Jack Kirby doing cosmic sublime, not technological sublime. Just, just Jack Kirby really, like at this point he was experimenting with some collage work that feels very different from anything else, but also he's just drawing some really far out things <laughs> when Johnny Storm is returning uh, with the ulti- this mysterious weapon called the Ultimate Nullifier great stanley labeling there the ultimate nullifier mr fantastic threatens galactus with the ultimate nullifier which can cause the entire universe to cease to exist which means galactus would cease to exist galactus accuses watcher of meddling, saying you have given a match to a child who lives in a tinderbox galactus agrees to leave earth and never return to punish the silver surfer for turning against him he takes away the power cosmic and banishes him to have to stay on earth and eventually we're to get you know, silver server on earth stories happening. The end minus some setup for future stories. That's the end of this issue. I'm not going to deal with Johnny storm going off to college. Yeah. Um, like you said, it's a tight, <laughs> tight story. <laughs> Galactus has a Herald. Herald comes to earth, says to, to Galactus, come here. Galactus comes. Starts to eating, uh, you know, to eat the earth and the Fantastic Four find uh, a a, very literally a deus ex machina, (laughs) you know, a machine of the gods (laughs) to stop Galactus and Galactus leaves. That's the story. What did you think, Andrew?
1: Uh, It's good stuff. Of course, it's good stuff. Like Jack Kirby is amazingly skilled at drawing all this stuff. And I give I I tend to give most of the credit to him Mm -hmm. when he's collaborating with Stanley. Because he's uh, putting all now. of this together. He's he's, yeah. you know, doing the layouts and everything. Stan is not giving him, you know, a, a detailed breakdown of what he wants to see on each page. Mm-hmm. Jack Kirby is is making up this story and pacing it and and all of that sort of stuff.
0: Now, I, I completely true. I do also want to say we see Jack Kirby work without Stanley when he goes to D.C. And it is not as good as his collaborations with Stanley. <laughs> it is fascinating, but it's. Also not as good. I'm just going to say it that way. There is something about the earnest corniness of Stanley's dialogue that just feels right paired with the artistic style of Jack Kirby. Mm-hmm. Um and the words that Jack, uh, that Stanley puts onto the page are just right. <laughs> and like I said, it's not what we would read today. It feels dated. It is not timeless storytelling. Uh that that's in there but it also just feels like this wonderful, glorious time capsule of 1960s pop culture. Mm -hmm. Um, and this, uh, like pushing the boundaries of what comic storytelling is going to be in terms of scope, in terms of scale, in terms of stakes, uh, It's just you know what what's the edge? Let's let's go a little farther. And this is like almost exactly in the middle of the Stanley Jack Kirby Fantastic Four collaboration. I mean, they collaborate to create the Avengers, the Fantastic Four, um, the X Men, uh, but but they worked together on the Fantastic Four. I think it's for 108 issues. I'm pulling it off the top of the dome. I know it's over 100. I think it was 108 issues straight of Fantastic Four that Jack Kirby and Stanley um, worked together on. And this is almost exactly in the middle of that and it's still i I think generally considered like the best of their work uh of this very Mm -hmm. long like historic collaboration between these two storytellers that are really foundational for where american popular culture has gone you know in in the decades since
1: uh they stopped collaborating together right um so what in particular do you want to talk about
0: Okay, uh, I just want to get this out there. If you go look, go online and find the first image of Galactus, it will most likely cause you to, at the very least, smirk; at the most, laugh out loud, <laughs> because it is a giant man wearing a mini skirt with a giant G on his test, on his chest. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and the coloring in that first like that that one appearance in issue number forty eight. He's red and green, <laughs> the, the costuming. Yes. In uh, and, and the next issue, it becomes purple. <laughs> I don't know if there was an issue with the plates. I've always seen it reprinted this way. I don't know if the colors change. There's no colors listed in the credits, and I don't know who's doing the coloring there. Um, but it all, always stands out. And it is an absurd figure. It just oh, is. Yes. It's it's wild. Yeah. <laughs> um, And yet... It works for this story. I, uh, like if you move from the context and you just drop that, that image online in like, uh, you know, a Facebook post or, uh, you know, Twitter like get a load of this. Yeah. You're going to laugh at the absurdity of, uh, of, of this comic book panel. Um, and I, I think subsequent writers have gone out of their way to like explain why Galactus appears as a gigantic human figure. Um, they, they sometimes will say, like, he appears in the form of, like, the, the culture. You know, or, right. Like, people he's, are perceiving he's supposed to, him. He's supposed uh, to
1: be uh, com- com- comprehensible in some right. way.
0: Yes. And so, like, aliens perceive him as basically a giant threatening version of themselves. <laughs> it's is why we have this giant like it just looks like a white guy that's gigantic and has a really weird helmet on. Uh so <laughs> what we get get for a lot of it. Uh and yet there's something that works with uh Jack Kirby's uh like dynamism, the way that he presents this figure that makes me embrace that absurdity instead of having that again kind of like scoffing distancing of <laughs> this is silly, this is kid stuff. Mm mm-hmm. Mhm. So I just want to acknowledge that if you go read these, there's some absurdity there's a lot, a lot of absurdity <laughs> um but there's also some really, really great moments Do, are, is there any moment that particularly worked for
1: you as you read this for the first time um in like in in what way like character moments or or uh, sure
0: where you just kind of like you're reading it, and you're like, oh, this works right here right now
1: <laughs> I mean, like you so quickly grasp it and e- even I mean, even without having read the previous 50 issues, you immediately grasp just the absence, the absenteeism of Mr. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. It, like within the first issue, they get back home and then immediately Sue is like, Where's my husband? Yes. Like, why is he gone already? We can't even get dinner. And to some degree, it also feels like. It feels regressive as a representation of Sue, right? Because so because nagging like housewife. It, yes, and but also like, yeah. I mean, why is he gone all all of a sudden? <laughs> like he should be present and engaged with his family and friends and his team. Yeah, I mean, this is
0: uh, something I've written about uh, academically. The, these women in these early 1960s Marvel comics are not progressive many of them become progressive figures as subsequent writers and artists evolve and transform and build on the foundation of these characters um invisible uh so, so I, i'm trying to remember the exact title of the essay that i published in a book called like heroines of popular culture uh but it was about the women that were on the early Marvel teams fantastic four avengers and uh x-men and it was i think the title was invisible tiny and distant because you have (laughs) invisible girl and then you have the wasp who shrinks down and uh will often just disappear uh from avengers action scenes which uh, these are all collaborations between jack harvey and stanley and then in the x-men the only girl is um marvel girl um and she has telekinetic powers that she just kind of often is standing in the background and maybe they show her doing something maybe not <laughs> it's right she, she's often just back there whereas um the the male figures in these stories tend to have more agentive dynamic choices than, than what we're often given now like i said invisible girl is going to eventually become invisible woman and be uh respected and presented to readers consistently as one of the most powerful superheroes in the entire marvel universe because the ability to turn anything invisible or create a force field anywhere uh you know according to the strength of your will there's quite a lot of creativity that that allows storytellers um to be able to do with her similarly uh marvel girl is gonna become phoenix one of the most powerful figures in all of uh you know marvel uh history (laughs) um Mm -hmm. and wasp is gonna become like a leader of the avengers Uh, like all these characters do end up being transformed uh later on but early on like you said maybe it feels a little regressive uh some some of the the aspects uh that we see in this instance between reed and sue like you said you kind of can be annoyed with both of them simultaneously <laughs> like yes like uh sue there's a lot going on um the world looks like it's on fire <laughs> can't really look into that but also reed how about you tell sue where you're going and what you're doing <laughs> yeah don't just immediately disappear mm-hmm um, but like you said, it, it it is presented very quickly. Like it's almost a shorthand uh, that you know these character types and and uh, what their roles are on the team very quickly. It's very uh, succinct storytelling that mm-hmm. that's coming. Um, one moment that always stands out to me when I've read this is there's this I, again, I'll, like I'm going to lean into the word absurd. There's this panel where Reed is shaving and the thing is in. The I backup. was going to talk about. <laughs> About Reed shaving, yeah. There's like this moment of like we have some needs we need to take care of, even though there's a lot of stress. <laughs> the world could be ending, uh, and uh, that 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 has always stood out to me of this this book that is very much about a family unit. There's the this this moment of domesticity that takes place in what is going to be for Marvel Comics a universe defining crisis.
1: Mm-hmm. And and. He's just like, "Well, sometimes like we can think while shaving mm-hmm. <laughs> um I think this
0: the one thing that also stands out is um you know Johnny Storm's whole journey as the human torch to go get the ultimate nullifier. He's not gonna be the one that actually wields the ultimate nullifier that's gonna be mr fantastic uh at the end um but it does you know show you know, this power level of the human torch that he's gonna be trusted uh to go." travel to the outer reaches of space i think is what it says um to go in and i uh, you know get get this tool uh to to uh, right. So like again, I mean it, it I would say Sue Storm probably gets the shortest shrift of any of the characters uh, in this. Yeah. We see we see the thing, you know, punch the Silver Surfer, uh we, you know, and, and knock him. We see Johnny Storm go and get the ultimate nullifier, we see Reed Richards use the ultimate nullifier. Uh so, so a lot of the characters have great moments. Though with the Silver Surfer, uh, this was a good moment uh for Alicia Masters. Um, you know, where her humanity and her empathy, uh, that is so immediately apparent to the Silver Surfer is what is going to, to uh, make, you know, make the major turn uh, in the story.
1: Right. Yeah. It, it's, it's definitely, um, it features her. I, I thought more than I expected this early on in, in the run of fantastic four, I would have thought of her as being a much later addition to the fantastic four.
0: Yeah. And she's still extremely prominent uh, in like the, the very recent, in, in the modern run and, and, and in the, the current, uh, I think Ryan North. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the, the creator of Dinosaur Comics is now writing the Fantastic Four for Marvel. Yeah. So if you ever enjoyed the online memeability of the never-changing panels of Dinosaur Comics and and yet Rhinor's ability to milk <laughs> both comedy and insight uh, from that layout, um, he's now the writer of Fantastic Four. What, is, what a strange path that must what have been. What an
1: interesting career. But yeah. Um, yeah, so so seeing her so prominent was surprising. And then I, I felt like it was missing to have, um, I, I didn't feel like I got, uh, the thing and the human torch hassling each other.
0: There's a classic uh, like, well, OK, we're, we're treating the this again as a like a family unit. It's like the teenage, bro- uh, you know, the brothers that just pick on each other. <laughs> that, that's the role that we often get the thing in Human Torch in. It's, it's not super present in this. It is in a lot of the Jack Kirby Stanley uh, issues. And, mm-hmm. But uh, but not in these issues mm-hmm.
1: for whatever reason.
0: Yeah. Um, and like I said, the, the thing is one of my very favorite characters. There's something I'm trying to, to put my finger on what is so so great um, about the the sadness of the thing uh, mm-hmm. because he feels like he's a monster. Uh, his, his physical appearance does weigh on him. Uh, but also he is like one, if you needed someone to show up in Marvel in the Marvel superhero pantheon, I think the thing is the one that you could trust almost as much as anyone <laughs> to, to be the right. character that's going to be like out of loyalty, will be there for you.
1: Yeah, he is extremely reliable. Yes. Um and it does
0: create this really great dynamic where um like Reed is going to have have this crushing guilt that uh you know I my power set allows me to look normal. Uh like I can stretch, but I don't have to. I can just look like a regular person. Sue's power set She can look normal. She can turn invisible, but she doesn't have to. She can just be a person sitting there. Johnny Storms, power set. He can look normal. Uh, He's not always on fire. When he wants to, he can burst into flames and fly. Uh, But the thing is permanently this rocky monster that is super strong, super tough, super durable, can go toe-to-toe with the Hulk, uh, but feels like uh, he is judged and perceived of uh, as a monster. Um, and, and that dynamic between Reed and Ben is just such a, um, you know, a powerful, a powerful source of drama, uh, for the fantastic four, one that has been used for decades, <laughs> very successfully. Like it is, it is uh, a well that every new writer seems to want to go back to mm-hmm. at some point. Uh, but, but the thi- I, I, I it's, it's hard to talk about this and say like the thing about the thing, <laughs> you know, or, or not say that, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, It it, uh, my understanding is that this was one of the most personal creations for Jack Kirby that he viewed himself as kind of the Ben Grimm figure um, in terms like he presents Ben Grimm as kind of a tough Jewish guy (laughs) from uh, Yancey Street. Uh, You know, this this, uh, you know, a Jewish neighborhood in, in New York City. And that's what Jack Kirby was, you know, he's, he was a, a tough brawler kind of guy who also happened to be a fantastic artist, uh, you know, uh, um, a culturally defining artist and storyteller uh, for us. But he was he viewed himself as just kind of a brawler Jewish kid <laughs> that, you know, uh, you know, had had some rough scraps uh, on the streets of New York and then also in World War Two. And uh, he definitely seemed to identify. And present Ben Grimm in that light. Though ben, ben Grimm canonically is not identified as Jewish until later on. Like now, he is explicitly Jewish, in the comics. Um, I know people have like Hanukkah cards from Jack Kirby where he used, you know, he uses Ben Grimm uh, and the thing. So I think there's something personal that does resonate uh in in the thing that you know like you said so much of the storytelling of the fantastic four we we do want to credit to to jack kirby i think there's something personal that does resonate and come through for the readers even if you don't necessarily know that the creator of this character seems to be doing some self-identification in the presentation of this character
1: mm-hmm. well and yeah like you said now everyone says well that is jack kirby mm-hmm you know, that's how he thought of himself. And, and to some extent that also makes Reed uh, Stan Lee. Yeah. I mean, they, they do a, uh, what if the Marvel bullpen become the fantastic four is an
0: issue of what if, so what if was a comic that, uh, you know, Marvel did of just like, absurd, uh, or or like uh, key points in Marvel timelines went differently. What if a different person was a bit by the spider? What if, uh, you know, uh, Thor, you know, lost this particular battle and they did a, like a goofy fun one. Or what if the Marvel bullpen turned into the fantastic four? And in that uh, Jack Kirby is the, is the thing figure. <laughs> and Stanley is mm-hmm. the Reed Richards.
1: Yeah. It, like it makes perfect sense. Yeah.
0: Um And, I think in terms of the dynamic that we see, uh, you know, Stanley is the editor of all of Marvel Comics at this point. Uh, he's dialoguing almost all of Marvel Comics at this point. He's holed up in his office an awful lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, is he, this figure that uh, Jack Kirby has, uh, you know, interactions with, uh, you know, from time to time. But also, I'm sure sometimes he want to get a hold of him, couldn't get a hold of him because he's doing, you know, 20 things to run the entire Marvel Comics publishing world.
1: Mm hmm.
0: Uh, at that point, uh, while Jack Kirby is you know, doing the grunt work of drawing <laughs> the the entire Marvel comics line. Not yeah. really. Like it was never the entire Marvel comics line, but it is still so astounding how much Marvel. It's you so, know, so much, much more than
1: right. is done regularly now by an artist.
0: Yeah. Um, anything else as far as the characters that stood out for you?
1: Um, uh, like, I want to talk about the silver surfer, but there's just not as much here as there will be. Of the Silver yeah. Surfer in general, I was surprised how little there was of him. And it, it, I think there's a seed of
0: fascination that is why you want to talk about him. Like, yeah, we don't get a lot, and it's kind of interesting that they end this issue with, um, you know, service Silver Surfer banished Earth. I don't know exactly how quickly they pick that up. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we've done a, a whole issue on Silver Surfer uh, with the recent Dan Slott and Mike Allred run. Yeah, but that was uh, a couple years ago. That we did on the podcast, it is another example. I think, I mean, okay, let's just say there's so much that's silly about these issues. The Watcher is this giant bald guy in a mm-hmm. in a Roman toga, in, yeah, in a toga, <laughs> and Galactus is a, a, this giant man in a miniskirt and a very strange helmet with a a G on his test uh, chest. He, he's rarely shown with a G on his costume anymore. <laughs> I, I was going to
1: say, I don't think that's consistent with his current costume.
0: Yeah. I don't think it's been done probably since this issue. Um, I, I, I think Stanley and Jack Kirby may have revisited Galactus once before they finished their run. So I'd have to go see that art um, to double check that. But yeah, you, you never see that anymore. Um, and the silver surfer is a naked silver guy on a surfboard in outer space. Like
1: what, why does this work? This should not work. Yeah, it should, it should be dumb. And somehow it's not quite dumb.
0: Yeah. And I mean, there's there's so many characters and ideas from early 60s Marvel that, you know, don't don't come up, don't resonate. Silver Surfer is something that like every creator seems to want to like, I've got a Silver Surfer story to tell guys. Can can I tell a Silver Surfer story? We're going to do a Silver Surfer solo series. OK, uh, <laughs> yeah. <you> know,
1: <laughs> I mean, he, he you appears... know, he's
0: called Silver Surfer. Like, like that name is almost one you can't say without a smirk. Uh, or or like even like, you know, Stanley will write things like to me, my board. But like, well, that's a really dumb thing for characters to, to say on the one hand. And yet, I love it. It's it, I love it. Um, mm-hmm. And Jack Kirby has said, like, he came up with the idea of the silver surfer. Like the two ideas were um, if there's this godlike being, that's going to be the bad guy for this story. I like the idea of a herald. Uh, and I like the idea of a, a, a of a fallen angel. Uh, so I'm going to have him be banished to earth, like as, as a fallen angel, kind of, you know, the God had a, had a helper that God got angry with. Uh, I'm like, okay, I can see that. And then the other thing he says is um, surfing was going to be really popular. And I saw a lot of things in magazines about kids on surfboards. <laughs> and so, <laughs> and so the Herald, the fallen angel is going to be a current pop culture trend that I see in youth culture magazines.
1: Mm hmm.
0: Uh, and so it's gonna be a, a guy surfing space.
1: It shouldn't work. I love it. <laughs> but and and well, and then it, it like part of it is elevated by Stan's writing, talking about him, mm-hmm. you know, surfing the starways and, and everything. It's like, yeah, it all comes together. Yeah,
0: and um so Stanley's dialogue when he does like a uh, Thor, uh, the Marvel version of Thor, another Jack Kirby and Stanley co-creation, uh he gives him this kind of faux Shakespearean Elizabethan dialect. He also gives that to Silver Surfer who's always speaking this kind of heightened uh philosophical prose um that it, that is going to give the character and it it helps to create this uh this distance between Silver Surfer and everyone else. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, right? Uh, with Johnny Storm, he's going to try and be using teenage lingo that I'm sure he was getting wrong because he was a man in his 40s (laughs) writing this. He's trying to make Johnny Storm have this distinct hip voice. Ben Grimm, he always gave this kind of grumbly, you know, uh, um, you know, more, you know, lower, lower class kind of uh, street speak. And Reed Richards, he would always give, uh, like like break out the thesaurus and find the five syllable word. Uh, wait, wait. like Stanley starts with his own two syllable word and then finds a five syllable word uh, right he st- finds
1: a longer version of, yeah, of yeah. whatever he's uh, trying to write
0: Reed Richards uh, so he's trying to give each of these characters distinct voices and the voice that he gives Silver Surfer I, I think is really key to that character working yeah even though he was shocked and surprised when the character existed on the pages that he was given
1: yeah he, he makes something of it mm-hmm. and it yeah it really does come together like it seems absurd it seems like it shouldn't work it seems like there's too much story in the amount of space that we have and just somehow all of it does come together
0: yeah Did you? um and even just that name silver surfer it's one of those like it sounds so comic booky mm-hmm. um and galactus similarly right it's like what what are we doing here uh and yet it you know it, it, like you said it all comes together it works but also silver surfer is like a, of creations from this era like there was a silver surfer cartoon in the 90s <laughs> um they they made two silver Sur- or fantastic four card uh movies and the second one was rise With of the silver, silver surfer, surfer. you know it's, it's iconic like, part
1: of the mythology
0: yeah this, this is part of what marvel storytelling is and i i hope uh if we do see another silver surfer adaptation in the MCU that uh, they don't feel the need to kind of do the constant joking of, Oh, is that the name? Cause I mean, we get that enough with every other Marvel character in the MCU (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) that there's always some sort of like side eye and acknowledgement that, Oh, these are our fake names. Um, You know, just let it be the silver surfer and we just move on and the audience is gonna be fine with it. Cause guess what? Audiences have been fine with it for decades at this point.
1: Yeah. Like it's, that is what it's called.
0: Hmm. Um. For, I mean, just we we've got a little more time, and uh, I I think we've talked about these three issues a lot. Is there something about the Fantastic Four that you enjoy uh, as a concept, as a as a character group, as a, a part of the Marvel uh
1: comic book universe? I mean, I've always loved the family aspect of it. Mm-hmm. I think that's a, a huge part of the appeal. Is saying like, no, this is a this is a unit. It's And, and it's different from a team also like a team feels like it's going to be more people. And it's like, no, it's four, like it, this is how many, this is how many people we are dealing with. And so when they have substitute members, you know, it's, it's part of that number and you, you can fit four people into a, uh, or onto a cover really easily. And it's not too cluttered as soon as, by the time you get to five, it feels like it's a little more difficult just to. You know, uh, lay out a panel or lay out a cover cover of the of the comic and things like that. So I I like, you know, four and I like the family aspect of it.
0: Yeah. um, To build off both of those, I think I think having the four and having them be so distinct in their roles and powers. It like, like they got the formula right where you have Reed Richards. Mr. Fantastic is the leader uh sue storm is defense uh with her her force fields at least that's how she's used for a long run of the fantastic four now she uses her force fields much more offensively but uh for a long time she was defense uh human torch is firepower and uh, the
1: thing is brute strength it's like okay
0: <laughs> like this could be a D campaign
1: <laughs> yeah it's a, it's a very well balanced grouping mm-hmm. it like everyone has their role and they understand that with each other and it's different from other marvel
0: superhero teams and I'm not saying this that one group is better it's just nice that there's a distinct flavor to this versus the avengers which usually is established heroes that are coming together for a larger threat mm-hmm. uh, you know that's different than a family unit and the x men is a group that feels separate from a larger group around them that's different than a family unit right yeah. uh you know the, the things that are binding them or, or or bonding them together are are very different from the other Main Marvel superhero teams, and also the Justice League, you know, and um, you know, it it really does provide a different set of stakes and uh character interactions to have it be presented as this family unit. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and yeah, like like I said, I I think that is a really really good thing, uh, to to set this apart from so many other superheroes. And it always is surprising to me that again, this is the beginning of the Marvel superhero universe uh, in, in comic books is this thing, which uh, in the, in, the, I don't think they get their costumes, which are just kind of blue leotards with a four <laughs> on the front. Right. And to, until issue three or four uh, of the series. Um, and, and in the very beginning, Stanley really was trying to say no costumes, but then they decided like, just for visual uh, dynamism, you needed, uh, you know, the costumes, um, to to be present there uh it it does come together really well they 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 found something in this in this formula um and it's been disappointing to see that the live action adaptations haven't quite gotten it right um Mm -hmm. a lot of people will say like the best adaptation of the fantastic four is the incredibles yes (laughs) Um, where you where you shift some of these things but also you can see these character types uh, like you got mr fantastic you got Elastigirl, uh you've got the thing you've got mr. yeah Incredible. you can see you can
1: see all of it there. you
0: you <laughs> yeah it, it's there <laughs> violet uh with some of the with the, the force
1: fields the
0: force fields and and, and invisibility yeah it's just a different version of, of the human torch
1: yeah he's just it's he's fast instead of fire
0: yeah uh and i remember seeing that uh or because the first Incredibles movie came out just before the live action Fantastic Four movie, I think. Like, like I think the Fantastic Four movie was maybe in production when the Incredibles movie came out. I just remember reading that uh, in the live action, they had actually filmed a version with uh, the thing getting a cat out of the tree by picking up the whole tree and shaking the tree. And then they watched Incredibles and, like,
1: if oh, we have to take whole, it out,
0: gotta cut the whole thing that we've already filmed. <laughs> it's out (laughs) Mm -hmm. that's how close you know some of the analogs between these characters and the Incredibles are Um, and the Incredibles is, you know, generally regarded as one of the best superhero films that's ever been made. Uh, And it's using a lot of the family dynamic and the character types from the fantastic four. And I am not trying to say it's a ripoff of the fantastic four. I'm just saying this is a formula that works.
1: Yes, this, this works and you can see it in an, in an entirely separate example yeah. how they use this.
0: And I was like we said about like four it's actually a really good number for a group for uh you know a 22 page comic. Mm-hmm. Um some comics with larger teams it's hard to service all the members of the team for a story and make it feel like they're all vital uh you know and and have a role uh or at least even have a scene <laughs> uh, in the comic. Well, you know when the X-Men have 33 comic characters that are maybe on the team depending <laughs> on the you know what what the register sides or or the avengers you know we you know we we got usually seven i think is the usual number
1: yeah like avengers six box. or seven
0: um four four is great um and even when you start to expand it and so like we introduced the silver Surfer here they're gonna love the silver Surfer and they're gonna keep revisiting them it's great well, let's give the silver Surfer a spinoff comic because the fantastic four are the four it's not the silver Surfer has joined the fantastic four
1: Yeah. Like adding him into the fantastic four is not quite the right way to do it.
0: Yeah. And, um, just, you know, as my, my final wrap up, this, this team is hugely important for, for Marvel comics, which means it's important for our cultural literacy today, because that's sprawled out into so much of television and, and, and Hollywood and video games and the type of storytelling that they do has been adapted, uh, you know, into into so much of of the media that we consume today, um, you know mm-hmm. the, the the comic book world uh, of of a shared universe with stories that that are going to interconnect. That's what we see in a lot of streaming services and a lot of uh, even even big budget filmmaking. Uh, and for Stanley and Jack Kirby, it all goes back to the Fantastic Four. So I'm glad that we've gotten around to talking about them finally.
1: <laughs> Do you have any final thoughts about the Fantastic Four? No, this was just really good classic stuff mm-hmm. uh and i
0: i i had some thought earlier on uh is there do you do you have like an impression of of what is corny and cheesy and which one would you assign to the art and the dialogue <laughs>
1: um
0: even those words generally uh, get used almost synonymously
1: yeah i don't know i'd say i'd attribute more of it to the dialogue in general for mm-hmm. for both of those terms
0: yeah, I don't know, though. I mean, the Silver Surfer's look and, and Galactus's look and, and the Watcher's look, those are also corny, don't they? But
1: I, <laughs> but I feel like more of the dialogue is more of of that and more of the art is like, no, this is just really good.
0: Yeah. And uh, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's good storytelling uh, that's happening even as there are corny and cheesy elements to it. And I don't mind going back and finding those. Like, I enjoy modern comic books. And I also kind of enjoy going back to these 1960s comic books too <laughs> alright that's gonna wrap up this episode thank you for joining us for show notes and links to all the other great Dueling Genre shows you can go to DuelingGenre.com also please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast and your podcast app of choice please leave us a review that really helps us out and we'd like to thank Scott talk to you who proposed our theme music thank you again for listening we'll be back next week to discuss another great character and a great story Excelsior
1: Go for it. Okay.